Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. everyone. We're doing a special crossover with Jerry's Take on China, and I'm Jason from The Bridge Podcast, and we're going to be talking today a little bit about Chinese development finance and the BRI. Hello, Jerry. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. I've noticed that it's pretty cold in Beijing. Uh, <laughs> yesterday in Zhongshan, and from the map, we can see we're 2,000 kilometers south of you. It's 29 yesterday, 29C, and today is only 27. Oh my gosh, it's so cold so there. Hence, hence the t-shirt. <laughs> you know, it's snowing here. You know, okay. they have the Chinese solar calendar where they tell you each time the weather's going to yeah. change. Yeah. It's like an almanac, actually. It's a really good thing. People should, there's 24 um, terms that they use to divide right. the yeah. year into 24 different parts. We should do a show about that. Yeah, Just that, that on its own be would be an interesting we, show. In, in Beijing, it seems to come true because they had the the, the first small snow, something mm -hmm. like that, two weeks ago. And then suddenly the yeah. temperature just dropped on that day, like 15 degrees to like zero. It, it was really cold that day. I was just surprised how accurate it was. It's They've had plenty of time to get it right. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah. today we'll be talking about the Belt and Road Initiative. So what is the Belt and Road Initiative? Um, well, I'd, I'd like to go a little bit because I've been reading about this and about Chinese development finance. Before they actually launched the Belt and Road Initiative, China was already engaged in like what they call Chinese development finance, where uh, different banks, China uh, Import and Export Bank, sometimes called China XM Bank, was making loans. And so were independent banks making loans for development projects all over the world. In fact, as early as the African in independent movements in the 1960s, when countries were getting their independent status yeah, from the Europeans, basically, China was already coming over and building small-scale hydropower projects and stuff. You and this, know. this was well before China opened and reformed. Right, yes. And so th there's been an ongoing, what they call, in the UN, it's called South-South Development. The global South being all the countries that have yet to develop. And China mm. has been a big part of doing that forever. Mm. From 2010 or so, way before Belt and Road, China was already doing this kind of around the world, schools, hospitals, and so forth. And so the Belt and Road Initiative kind of took that and reformatted it in a new way, which is based mm. on logistics and market growth between countries so that the South could kind of rise together. Yeah. I've got a, an interesting point that I came up with uh, a few weeks ago. I was writing an article and it, and it just hit me. These things hit me in momentarily instance, map, uh, lapses of reason. And I I, I wrote it down. So the uh, my main point about what China is doing in the underdeveloped world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that if the colonial era had been at all interested in the places they were colonizing, there wouldn't be a developing world. Mm -hmm. They would have developed it already. They had 400 years of plundering, mm -hmm. exploiting Africa, South Central America, Asia, and they didn't develop it. The only places they developed 
America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong. They developed the places that they wanted to settle in, but they didn't develop India. They didn't develop Africa. All they did was take resources from those. So the reason we have an underdeveloped or global south is because the global north has exploited it for 400 years. Had they not done that, had they done what China is doing now, we may have a very different world. You know, there are so many different points I want to make about that. I wish maybe we could do two shows about this. But um, I have a British friend. He always said, oh, well, we built the the rail in in India, you know, in South Asia. And well, a lot of that was just (laughs) so they could get India's wealth to ports. So the purpose of those rail. In all fairness, that's what China is doing, too. I mean, let's let's not be rosy glassed about this. China is doing the same thing. There, There is method in their madness. However, what they're doing there is they're leaving infrastructure and uh, they're doing it in, in a controlled manner. Now, they don't just build a train line. They build, as they've done in Laos, for example, and Andy Borum did a great video on this. In Laos, they didn't just build a train line. They built a train training school so that the Laotians can actually take over the running of it. They now have, currently, they have a Chinese um, general manager or CEO of the of the train system, but they've actually got trained Laotians coming through the ranks. And in, in time, this will be all part of it. Now, they don't just say, we're going to build this to Laos. We're going to build this from Laos through to Malaysia, go to Malaysia, and then we're going to go through, uh, we're going to go through Thailand into Malaysia and all the way down to Singapore. So, Ultimately, this train line that goes from Kunming right now may very well go to Indonesia as well. Mm-hmm. And well, then there's no reason why, given China's development, and they did talk about this a few years ago, we could end up on a train all the way to Australia. Yeah, I've heard about that too. I've heard, I heard about the one to Indonesia. I haven't heard about the one to mm-hmm. Australia. That sounds kind of a, literally a bit of a stretch. But, you know, there's actually a difference. There's another difference we need to point out between the infrastructure projects that are being developed in these places and the ones that were developed under European colonialism. When the European uh, imperialists were in the develop, underdeveloped world, which they were mm-hmm. underdeveloping, they were literally extracting wealth, they were mm-hmm. governing those places and they were making the decisions to extract that wealth. Now, under the Belt and Road Initiative, it's the nation's in themselves that are coming to China and saying, we want a railroad. You know, we have this mine. We want to get this product to market. We'll help you be one of the benefactors of that. So China is making loans oftentimes under the Belt and Road Initiative and helping develop the infrastructure so that they can get their product to market and also buying that that product in some cases. But the deciding factors, the decision makers in what infrastructure gets built is coming from the developing countries themselves. So it's not Mm. like China is just like going into Kenya and building rail and then taking coal out like the Europeans did. So I do want to differentiate that. Example of that was the Solomon Islands, where China signed an agreement, which which absolutely upset the Australians. It upset the Americans because the Solomon Islands is their backyard. Mm. Uh, But the Solomon Islands prime minister stood up in the United Nations and said, I am a democratically elected prime minister. I took the decision to my democratically elected parliament, and we made a decision that we were going to align ourselves with the Chinese for this particular purpose. It doesn't mean we hate the Australians. It doesn't mean we hate America, but it means that we are now aligning ourselves with the Chinese strategy democratically. Mm-hmm. Please stop criticizing us for doing this. This is what you wanted us to do. Be democratic. We are being democratic and this is how it works. Now, I'm sure quite a lot of African countries are doing the same thing. They're making this decision because it's the best decision for the people mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. the best decision for China. Mm-hmm. Well, you mean China is absolutely, like you mentioned, not the rose-colored glasses. China benefits from this 
those two. And, you know, you clearly know the term I'm about to throw out, win-win diplomacy. You know, China is helping build these infrastructure projects. Oftentimes, not always, oftentimes it's Chinese companies that get the contracts to build these projects. So like mm-hmm. China Exim Bank or, you know, ICBC will make a huge loan, which, you know, I have to mention, I, I do look at these loans all the time, every day for an hour or two a day. Most of them are like 2% loans. Some of them are 0% loans. Mm-hmm. Very rarely are they a little higher, but they're not even close to the, the open market loans that come from like Paris Group and things like that. So China makes the loan and then they make a minimal amount of interest on that, which is similar to investing a US in a US treasury. And at the same time, then Chinese companies get the ability to develop that infrastructure. But what the recipient country who usually initiates the idea of building that project gets is the infrastructure that they want at a low interest and you know they get usually get a lot of support with that as well because like you said China will oftentimes provide training to local officials employ local uh, employees and actually develop a lot of the linkages from that infrastructure to other parts of the belt and road or other parts of that uh, developing economy yet there's also some side sidelines on this as well so maybe the China will build a rail line maybe China will build build a hospital, maybe they'll do, but they're actually building something else as well. They're building community in there. They, they, you're right. They go in there with a Chinese company on a Chinese loan, building a, a Chinese uh, design school, hospital, or whatever it is. But the people who are doing the work, the guys with the shovels and the picks, they are local people getting local salaries. So that that helps the local economy. Then when they finish building a school, what happens? Kids go to that school. Yeah. Now you're building an educational system which mm-hmm. they didn't have in the past, and that's an. They've done this in um, in Iraq just recently. Mm-hmm. They've built ten thousand schools. Well, in I Iraq. think they've only finished two thousand, but eight thousand yeah, are on their they're way. They're building. Yeah, yeah building ten thousand. Sorry. Uh, so you had 10,000 schools in Iraq. Now, why the hell didn't America do that? They said uh, they were America, going to. In 2003 yeah, to 2007, they were like, oh, we're going to build it all amazing. It's going to be yeah. great, but way better than it was before. And then no. But the Iraqi government have asked Americans to leave. And Americans <laughs> won't leave. They say, we can't leave. It's not safe for us to leave. Well, uh, they have this. Uh, where's democracy? Yeah, exactly. The United States actually made a military strike about a week ago in Iraq. So um, that's even U.S. imperialism there hasn't ended. You're listening to The Bridge. But I want to differentiate a few things because I do post every day on Twitter and Reddit and elsewhere, like uh, posts about things that China has developed or is developing. Not all of them are actually the Belt and Road. And it's very confusing. And it's still confusing to me. I was at a think tank group recently. There was the Belt and Road Forum going on in Beijing. And I got to go to a Belt and Road sidebar with Eric Solheim, a former Undersecretary of the United Nations, and the foreign ambassador for Cambodia. And while I was there, I asked the president of a group called GGI, which is the Global Governance Institute, Kevin, who is a Chinese gentleman, what qualifies as Belt and Road. And I brought up an example of a hospital that was built in Cambodia for free by China, by the Chinese military, actually, as a gift from uh, China to Cambodia. So I asked Kevin, because he's a former military gentleman, uh, about this uh, hospital. Is this the Belt and Road is what I was asking him, because we're at a Belt and Road side forum with a bunch of think tanks. He's the president of a think tank. He's Chinese. 
And I'm asking him, is this Belt and Road? And he said, kind of. He said that the concept of the Belt and Road umbrella doesn't always define exactly what is part of the Belt and Road and what is not. So I've taken to kind of differentiating things myself into categories. There's Chinese emergency aid, and it's oftentimes mm. called that. And China does a lot of this. This is similar to what America does. The United States. A great often... example was Afghanistan just a few months ago mm. when they had an earthquake. They sent, I think, thirty million dollars U.S. dollars right straight into Afghanistan. And also, just food, aid. trucks loaded with rice and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they've yeah. done that multiple times with Afghanistan, also, and the Philippines a couple of times because they've been massive hurricanes and Tonga when the, the, the volcano went off all over the place. Nepal right after the earthquake in 2016 and recently again in Nepal. So China's constantly giving this emergency aid and oftentimes that's food, that's tents, that's sleeping bags, that's water uh, cleaning devices, uh, lanterns, that, that kind of stuff. They sent doctors and nurses too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so China does this all the time, especially in emergencies. But this is not China's MO for helping develop economies. So the United States does this as its aid, oftentimes. US aid, yeah. Yeah, US aid also donates through the United Nations. That's oftentimes just food, food aid. Mm. And a lot of the other aid from the United States, honestly, is military aid, or it's money to buy US military weapons. So people mm. oftentimes point to the United States, well, look at all the aid they have. But if you actually look at the categories of aid, an enormous amount of that is just going to support the US military industrial complex. But the United States does, in all fairness, supply a lot of food to the developing world or the underdeveloped world as you rightly pointed out earlier. However, China doesn't really think like that except in emergencies. China is actually trying to create self-sufficiency. So they have something called Chinese Development Finance or Chinese finance. Development Aid. And this is separate from the actual Belt and Road, which are mostly loans to build projects. Mm -hmm. These are free infrastructure projects, which is kind of what I've been posting. I'm not posting on my Twitter a lot of the actual projects that cost 2% that are like $10 billion projects to build a hydropower dam that's going to provide electricity for the entire country. I'm actually talking about Chinese development aid. And so mm -hmm. these projects are generally grants. And so grants, and I get a lot of uh, flack for this, are free. People say, don't use the word free, Jason. Everything costs something. So they're, they mean diplomacy, I guess. Mm, soft power. To me, you know, if you're going to do diplomacy, a free hospital's dang good way to, to do diplomacy. <laughs> Better than building a military base. Right. Uh, Djibouti is another example with the, uh, the Horn of Africa, the pirates. So they built a naval base and a military installation there, which is necessary to prevent the piracy through across the Horn of Africa through uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea. I think it's really interesting to point out for that specific one, because I think it's the only real foreign military base that China has anywhere in the world. It's the only one. Yeah. Is that America asked China to build that. Correct. Yeah, America, you need to do your part, the, China. You need to help with piracy. In in the past, uh, yeah, because it's all your stuff coming through here, which right. is true. <laughs> so in the past, uh, they used to report positively about, you can still find in the archives uh, in the military, US military stars and stripes and things like that, very positive reports about how China's contribution was so helpful to the piracy problem in the Horn of Africa. Now they've got piracy problems elsewhere. It may happen again somewhere else. But yeah, that military aid is an interesting one and military aid is very different to military occupation like Okinawa or South Korea or uh, the places at Guam. Guam, 30% of the island of, of the, the territory of Guam 
is an American military base. 30% wow. of the country is, is an American military base. Uh, that's a different situation. Well, I think, you know, you're pointing out interesting examples of these smaller places. We think of Okinawa, right? But actually, mm. I've heard a lot of people argue that, you know, Japan is basically a colonized place for the United States. South Korea is also either protest for the last yeah. at least 20 years that I've been paying attention. There are protests pretty much every year in South Korea asking the United States to leave. But, you know, da daily in Okinawa, because in Okinawa, the local people, the Ryushi people uh, don't believe they are Japanese. Right. Uh, they have been occupied by the Japanese, which are then in turn occupied by the Americans with the Japanese compliance. So there's, a, there's an extra problem for them, an extra layer of um, protest that they need to go through. So they, they have a permanent protest point outside of some of the military bases. Permanent. It's there every day. Mm. I wanted mm. to talk a little bit about the actual projects. I was scared thinking about how we're going to do this, Jerry, because yeah, I don't want to just turn much. into a giant list of stuff. So I think we should talk about each one kind of slowly a little bit. Yes. Otherwise, it's going to just sound like too much information. So there, these are examples I put out for... I like uh, what you've done. Uh, you, you sent me a note. For this note that you sent mm -hmm. me, I'm looking at uh, two screens here. The note that you sent me, when we post this, I'm going to put this, link it to... I'm going to put this on Substack, and I'm going to link it to this video so that people can watch the video and have a look at this and say, wow, this is, this is where we are with this. Uh, if you don't mind, I mean, I've made a few of my own notes on it, but without any editing, I'm just going to put notes from our discussion because it does, it divides it into hospitals, into roads, into other things. And I think it's really important how you structured this that we can follow that for our discussion today, if that's okay. Well, I just want to mention a couple of things about this. Each one of these projects, I before I posted it, I checked like 20 different websites and 20 different articles. I provide usually three or four different links. Sometimes it's just one, but uh, that was just because I was working on aesthetics to get people interested in this so that people would be aware of what China was doing. But um, these are proven links. There, Most of them are come from university websites. So I go to this mm -hmm. uh, website, the college of William and Mary, which is a highly reputable university in the United States. And they have a whole suite of information about China's Belt and Road Initiative. I also go to Carey's website, which is part of John Hopkins University for every one of these projects. And I, I check all of these academic references. So these are verified projects that China has paid for, usually in total. The, the Each one of them will, will, will mention. So for one example, so we can get out of the abstract, is China donated a hospital to Kenya. It's an mm -hmm. $11 million five-story facility without patient services, ER, 12 ICU beds, 84 beds, a lab maternity unit, operating theater, and equipment. So, I mean, Donated. yeah. So this is creating the conditions for independence. So the United States and China and Europeans, they all send doctors. There's doctors without borders. There's private wealthy individuals in these countries that send doctors with their own money. They have their own NGOs. People donate mm -hmm. lots of money just to different campaigns. But if you can build an underdeveloped place, a hospital, and provide even medical training in some cases for nurses and doctors who go to universities mm -hmm. in China on scholarships, and then they have their own hospital, you, be, you create the conditions where they don't need aid. I met a man in um, Guangzhou uh, six months ago, back in June. I met this guy and uh, he was an African and we started chatting to each other. And I said, what do you do? He said, I'm in medical supplies. Oh, that's interesting. He said, I, yeah, I export everything to Africa. And I said, well, how'd you get into that? He said, I came to China to train as a doctor. I, I, 
I trained as a doctor, worked as a doctor in Guangdong for several uh, several years, and then I gave that up and started exporting medical stuff back to the people I trained with back in I think it was Uganda, Uganda that he where he came from. So he came from Uganda on a scholarship to China. And now, for for the last twenty six years, has lived in China. Mm. Uh, he is totally fluent in in. Uh, he speaks Cantonese as well, but totally fluent wow. in Puronghua. Uh, we had a great conversation, and and it was just amazing that uh, he he stopped uh, practicing as a doctor uh, three or four years after he graduated, but he never practiced in Africa. He stayed in China. All of his classmates went back to Africa, but uh, now he has a business where he kind of services their needs. Uh, so there's a great example. Twenty five. 26 years ago, this happened. It's, it's a pretty good system. Well, I mean, I think the point I really want to make is that if you're a nation, do you want to have your own hospital where you have your own physicians and your own doctors and you can take care of your own people? Or do you want to be dependent yes. on an NGO or the United States or Canada or, or China? Red Cross coming in. Right. Do you, mm. you? I think most people, they want to know that they are part of the global economy. People want to have self-respect. People. So what China is doing is essentially giving people independence. So they have political independence. Yeah. Independence and China is essentially helping them have greater degrees of economic independence because they're able to provide for their own people. They have hospitals yeah. for their own people with their own physicians in those hospitals, with maybe a little bit of support from the outside world. They get support. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's another interesting aspect to that that most people don't consider is the cultural aspect. If you are in Kenya and you are Kenyan and you are seen by uh, a Swiss or a French or an Italian doctor, that doctor doesn't have the same uh, cultural awareness of your needs. Now, if you're in Kenya, you'd, uh, you're not necessarily a Muslim and have different needs, but you, you'd, you'd have your own tribal needs, whereas the Kenyan doctor would know that and would understand that. And it's the same. We come to China. You've probably been to a hospital. It's very different, isn't it, <laughs> to a Western hospital. Privacy is a little less uh, obvious. Uh, you know, you'll be in the doctor's room and someone will walk in to see what's going on with the foreigner. You, know, and you, you might be having a <laughs> medical examination and someone wants to know. And then there's three people standing at the door looking in to see what's going on. Now, that's a cultural thing. It's very different. But Africa would have the same kind of things, whereas China you know, China says, well, we're going to build your hospital. We're going to help you to staff it. We're going to give you some Chinese staff. And there are Chinese staff all over Africa doing eye surgeries and heart surgeries. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, you know, they spend time over there, and it's part of their... Uh, part of their personal growth and professional growth as well. They go to a third world <laughs> country and do many more operations than they would do in their own country. But ultimately, they're training the locals to do the job that they do. That's <laughs> the purpose. So that cultural awareness becomes less of an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. So uh, just really quickly, I'm going to go through a couple of these. So yeah, China spent $13.3 million for Sudan, building them a hospital, and $13.2 million giving Liberia I've a hospital. Uh, I'm here. You just maybe can't see me temporarily. Uh, China built, spent $31 million to build a center for children with disabilities in Mongolia. Um, that's a beautiful hospital, by mm. the way. So I saw lots of pictures of it. It looks amazing. And there's an, China spent $30 million for a hospital in Laos. And these are just some examples. I can't go through all of them because there's probably 100 hospitals that China has built mm. for free as gifts. In some cases, the same country, two or three. So they're all over the global south. They're in South America. They're in Africa. They're in Central Asia. They're in Southeast Asia, they're everywhere. Some, a lot of island countries in the Pacific as well, which I imagine Australia doesn't like, which is disturbing, actually. <laughs> um, here's the thing, you know, if if 
If Samoa needs a hospital and Australia says we can't afford to build you one and China says we can, what's wrong with China helping out there? Now, this is a, a Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu. All of these countries have been supplying Australia with Australian needs in terms of uh, some exports. And, and I, I was going to say slave labor or forced labor, but cheap labor is probably a better way to describe it. I mean, you, anyone who wants to research this can research the history of the Kanakas. That's Kanakas with Ks, K-A-N-A-K, Kanakas. And the Kanakas were the islanders who were brought across at very minimal wages to cut the cane, pick the uh, the vegetables. You know, basically, they were brought across as um, indentured labor, and they were given uh, given a season, uh, paid whatever they were paid, and sent back. Now that's that's been going on for well over a hundred years, and it still goes on today. And Australian farmers will say, you know, we need them, we need this cheap labor, otherwise the price of your carrots is going up. And this is you know, when when you get to a point where you say the price of your food will go up and unless we can have forced labor to pick them, then you have something wrong with your society. Mm -hmm. if, if that's the way your society must run, there's a big problem there. And that's what Australia has been doing with the, uh, the islands. And now China has come along and saying, you know, we want to help you. We want to build you this hospital, build this port, build these roads, build these schools. And whilst they're doing that, Australia is saying, hang on a second, this is our backyard. You know, we've been supporting them for a hundred years. Well, yeah, why do they still need a hospital? Why do they still need a port? Why do they still need roads? Why are you still exploit exploiting their workers? That's what needs to be asked in mm -hmm. this world. You know, if, if if you were supporting them, why do they need China now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, that, that's if you, a, that if is you, a very good point. You know, if actually, you I, them properly. I wrote a book well, about this, uh, and it's not out yet. It's going to be published in the next couple of months about the difference between I, I call it Euro-American imperialism and the China's Belt and Road Initiative, and how the two things are fundamentally different, and what China is trying to accomplish. And basically, the point that you just made is the thesis of the book. So, yeah, right. China's coming along okay. and giving these economies the ability to develop themselves. And uh, Europe and the United States are, oh my gosh, how dare China be involved in these countries? Everyone watch out for this debt trap. But, you know, when you when you build a, um, a hydropower dam, you don't need oil imports as much, right? You don't need coal imports right. as much. You have a, a century. Right, yeah. Did, did you know, have you met Mubarak Mugabu? I know, I, I know uh, who he is, yeah. But yeah, I, I he lived know. in Beijing for quite a while. He's back in Uganda. I interviewed him during the Belt and Road uh, uh, Summit. He was here as a journalist for Ugandan TV. And uh, the, he, he's got a great story about the, the hydro dam. He made it into a personal story. He wrote an article about a couple from different parts of Uganda who met at the hydro dam, and now they have a family. And it's, you know, China brought them together kind of thing. It was a great story, a human interest story, but it told the story of the dam. Uganda has forever, ever since they've had electricity, been subject to brownouts and blackouts, uh, you know, the problems. Now they have steady electricity flow and they are able to export electricity to neighboring countries because of one dam. One dam has changed Uganda's electrical environment or electrical generation environment completely. And it's created a love story while it was doing it, which was a nice, nice way to do it. But there's a great example that, that Uganda, Uganda was a, a British colony for many, many years. Why did they still have those problems? Mm. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge.
there's so many things I want to cover that my brain is going crazy. Yeah, One go, is keep going. <laughs> you decrease the reliance on imports for energy. But another thing is, in addition to that, electrification of these, these countries that were formerly not fully elect electrified allows things like the development of modern infrastructure like factories. So China doesn't have a huge role nationally building a lot of factories. Actually, it does. It, a few dozen, but not as much as most private companies are, are doing. And even a lot of European companies are coming in and now developing these. But this is fundamentally changing the developed world because during the modernization of Europe and America, Australia, uh, all these underdeveloped places were being underdeveloped so that they could provide raw materials that were then exported via these railways and such to Europe, Australia, United States, where they had manufacturing. And then those finished goods were sold back to the Africans at it and Southeast Asian, South all Asian, of them at yeah. the in, huge inflated rates. So basically European United States, Australia, you know, basically the G7 to some extent, were manufacturing everything and controlling the, the global economy. And China mm. is shaking that up. Now manufacturing is going into these places, these underdeveloped places and making them yep. developed. And they can use their own resources to process their own materials and deliver to their own populations and the global community new kinds of finished products, basically raising them out of I've poverty. I've got an interesting add-on to that, actually. I live in a city called Zhongshan. When I came to Zhongshan nearly 20 years ago, it was a huge shoe, boot, jeans, and t-shirt manufacturer. That's what was going on in Zhongshan. It's now a high-tech zone. It's very high-tech. It does have some manufacturing, for, for example, a lot of CNC machining going on, but it's CNC machining for the high-tech world. And Huawei are just about to open up. They announced a couple of days ago they're going to open a new factory in or new building, new site in Zhongshan. So that's the kind of way ours has gone. Now, where are all the t-shirts and the manufacturing? Most t-shirts have moved to places like Indonesia, Thailand, Bangladesh. The shoes are in Cambodia and Vietnam. And all of these, and I actually know business owners who have set up their own businesses in those countries. I'm a personal friend of a guy who has a factory in Cambodia who used to have a factory here. And you know, he comes back here from time to time and I see him. But uh, yeah, he's Cambodia. It wasn't the perfect solution for him, but it's getting there. He started, settled down now, all of the problems that he had for the first two or three years. So what's happened is that low tech, low, high volume, but low profit has all moved offshore or moved out of the Greater Bay Area, which is where I am. I, I'm about uh, 70, 80 minutes from Hong Kong by ferry uh, or an hour by road on the new bridge now. So we've moved from being a low-cost manufacturing area into a very high-technology, high-profit, high-driven uh, high area. It's a technology-driven area. So that's, that's an, an add-on to what you were just saying. Those places now have the infrastructure to build those factories. They, they didn't have the power. They didn't have the roads. They didn't have the ports to ship the things. So now with China's aid, they start, and Cambodia is a great example of this. You know, they've got schools. They've got hospitals. They've got roads. They've got a new port. They've got all of the things that, that China has, but on a smaller scale and can now offer those services to the rest of the world, which they couldn't do before. All they had before was tourism. And um, some of their tourism is pretty horrible. I've been to the, I mean, when I say horrible, I mean horrifically horrible. They have the Killing Fields Museums and things like that. Then, of course, they've got Angkor Wat and uh, other fantastic things too. So, yeah, they're basically living on tourism until China started to move its low-cost low, low cost 
low technology uh, out to places like that. Mm. So there's a benefit for them. I also want to talk about energy again, because I want to talk about mm. Laos, since you're talking about Cambodia. So in Laos, yeah. in the year 2000, they only had about 20% electrification throughout the entire country. And by 2019, oh. they had 100% electrification. And most of that is down to a series of about 10 dams. Now, these are not, as far as I know, gifts. They were not donated. They were like very low interest, zero, one percent uh, loans that cost billions of dollars, but they went from zero electrification to 100% electrification. During that same 20 years, and I can't say this, cannot say that these are causally related, but they're correlated perhaps, uh, life expectancy went up by about 10 years over the same period of time. So hmm. China is providing the kind of infrastructure that we take for granted, modern life. They're literally coming into modernity. And part of modernity is like you mentioned before, schools and education, mm. but it's also basic things like electrification and roads and factories. Mm. Yeah. I, I've not been to Laos, but I have been several times to Cambodia. And uh, I, I saw it, first time I saw it was more than 10 years ago, uh, pretty underdeveloped in the areas, even around Siem Reap, which is a hugely tourist. You, you've got the tourist resorts, of course, but then you've got the town center and they're very, very different. Uh, so even in places like that, they have now developed, they have grossly developed. I mean, it's incredible the changes if you go back to Cambodia now. And I have actually, 2019, I was back in Siem Reap again because I had a family member visiting there and said, oh, you can, you're very close to here. Why don't we meet up there? So I did, uh, but it was my third visit to the same place, which is something I probably wouldn't normally do. But it was interesting to see how that changed, how the places have developed mostly in Siem Reap, mostly through tourism. And much of that, a huge amount of that is Chinese tourism. Mm -hmm. They all take WeChat. They, many of them speak Chinese. They speak English too. But uh, it really is a, it's a changing world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to also mention, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people who don't know much about the Belt and Road Initiative think that it has a lot to do or almost exclusively to do with ports and roads and bridges. So I wanted mm -hmm. to say, yes, China does build uh, roads and bridges and things. A lot of those are actually donated. So in Bangladesh, they're on their eighth friendship bridge. Now, I was actually only able to find four of them. I'm not sure where the other ones are, but I found Friendship Bridge number five, six, seven, and eight. And I was able to find pictures of them and information. They were all gifts from China. I still haven't been able to find one through four. But I wanted to point out, um, this is in the Maldives. I hope I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that correctly. A 26... Yeah, Mal uh, Maldives, Maldives, yeah. yeah. Mal, Mal, I think it's, it's French pronunciation, Maldives. Mm. It's a $26.59 million road, which was built for free. Now, I looked at the map of this from above. It's not included in the pictures. And it basically mm -hmm. is the entire entire landmass of the Maldives. Yes, it's not, a very, it's not a very large place. Yeah. So they basically built the main road system for the entire island country. So that's amazing. And I have before and after pictures, which Jerry's going to use. So you guys can see that for yourself. It'll, it'll be on the link. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. 
Well, just like there is in the West where we have a cultural movements to control our own habits sometimes, the same thing happened here in China while I was here, while we were here, in that, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe around 2012, 2013, there was suddenly a movement to stop eating shark. So Chinese media went into uh, a shark frenzy. Fin. Not shark, shark but shark fin. Yeah, but they, so they mm-hmm. stopped basically fishing for that because people, mm-hmm. big celebrities came out and said, we don't eat this, this is wrong, stop doing this. And so this stopped happening as a cultural phenomenon mm. not completely but you know 99% of it is is gone so just like in the west there was a good reason mm-hmm. for that jason and and that was that they weren't catching the shark they were catching the shark cutting its top fin off and throwing it back so it would die it mm. needs that fin in order to swim it needs to swim in order to breathe so in other words it's just going to die a slow death in the water it's drowning and that was the reason is the cruelty of it if they were catching the whole shark and utilizing the entire shark the shark's meat, uh, and in the UK, we eat shark's meat and Australia too. It's called flake in Australia. I'm not sure what they call it in the UK, but they call it flake in Australia. And that's shark meat. So we do catch sharks, but they don't catch the shark and say, let's just cruelly cut off this fin and throw the shark back to die in pain, a slow drowning death. We catch the shark and we utilize it in the same way that we would if we're killing a cow or a sheep. So there's not much difference in that. But yeah, that was just because of the cruelty around the way Chinese people, Chinese fishermen were doing it. And it was cruel. There's no question about that. What you do have a problem with is the cruelty involved in bringing that meat to your table. And that's what had to stop. That's the social movement that you saw. My point is more Um, about conservation. Like Chinese folks are aware of the limits of our ecosystem, just like other people in other countries. I wanted to go over some more of these uh, examples real quick, just a couple. So we're into schools now. And I talked to Jeffrey Sachs about this, and he was talking about there are six steps to creating modern infrastructure. He wanted the world to spend a trillion dollars a year, which is not probably going to happen in terms of what kind of uh, money is available from various countries, but it's a it's a beautiful ideal. But one of the things he mentions that people need is education. So one of the things that China has been providing is friendship schools. So there are several mm. examples where China spends sometimes just a few hundred thousand. Some, some of the schools I found were as cheap as $400,000. And some of them, most of them are between 11 and $20 million to build schools around, around the world. So there, I have an example here from Ken one from Ethiopia, um, one from Eritrea, and uh, a couple of others in Cameroon and elsewhere. Namibia. The ones I put in here in the example, I think we have a rock here, which it says a thousand yeah, are finished. It's going to be 10,000 eventually. But China's actually building like two or three schools in about 100 countries. And almost all of those are completely free. Not only does China build the school, China usually furbishes the school, gives them like backpacks for students and books mm-hmm. and libraries and like tables and everything that they would need to open the school in what we call or what's known as a turnkey donation. Mm. So they literally, you can open the school now, go. And so like these places that didn't have a school or had a very old school that was built, you know, a century ago, suddenly they have the ability to educate a whole new generation of people, which again, gives them more autonomy and more independence. Yep. 
And some of these schools also have sports fields mm-hmm. and things like that, which again, it that adds to your life expectancy. It improves your lifestyle when you've got kids taking part in sport instead of going and sitting in a dank classroom. <laughs> and, and in all honesty, 20 years ago in China, I've, I've seen these type of schools here in China, traveling through Guangxi. I've got some great photographs from uh, years ago when my wife and I went on a charity tour. You know, we donated some money to charity and we were invited to go on this bus trip to Guangxi province. The places we saw, the places I've seen, oh my God, you think, <laughs> how can China do what it's doing now? But you should do before and after photo book. Um, I, I, I've tried to do that. I mean, I, I traveled through Ningxia in 2014, and then I traveled through again in 2019. And just that five and a half year difference, incredible difference, mm. incredible. You've gone from abject poverty in Ningxia, still inside of China, west of Beijing. Um, it's kind of literally a, a, about this point of your head on the map behind you, where the pink bit is, is Gansu. Ningxia is a wonderful place to visit. And it's, it's just full of Islamic culture. It's a Muslim culture. It's a wine culture. It, and it was full of poverty until a few years ago. And now it's not. There's still some poor people there. Of course there are. But the poverty is gone. The, the people lived in mud huts and caves and now in proper houses. Uh, there's and this is the ghost towns that they built. They build these ghost towns, Portos. and then all of a sudden, you you see tens of thousands of people moved from hovels into modern apartments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like that. So this is one of the reasons why we have ghost towns. But that's another story for another day too. China can do something that the United States cannot do. The United States obviously it still has a great deal of manufacturing going on, but one thing that it doesn't have is the modernization process that it once went through. Decades and decades ago, and this was pointed out to me by Jeffrey Sachs, is that China has all of this infrastructure for construction, for all the schools and hospitals that are built here in China, all the ports that it built and is building here in China. But it actually has overproduction of that ability now. So one of the ways to help China's economy keep growing in what is known as win-win diplomacy is to outsource some of that constructing ability elsewhere. So China donates money to Kenya. Here's $15 million. We're going to build you a school. And then China helps them decide to hire a Chinese company to come in and build the school so that overproduction, that excess construction ability is now being utilized somewhere else. The GDP of China and the GDP of Kenya both go up. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So China is like, we'll hire our own people to come in and build you a hospital. How does that sound? Yeah, it works very, very well. Well, You get a free hospital, right? There's there's a lot of people who criticize China for its, its high GDP is only based on infrastructure growth. Uh, Wait a moment, is that a criticism or is that a praise? (laughs) I'm not sure, but I think that's pretty good. Uh, And there's only a point to which they can add more infrastructure to, to maintain this GDP growth. But what you're saying there is, yes, they can still maintain GDP growth, by outsourcing or sourcing outwards, not outsourcing, right. but sourcing outwards the, the the GDP growth of China through the BRI. That's where the BRI is helping China's GDP to grow because a lot of what they're doing, hell of a lot of what they're doing is actually in other countries, mm-hmm. but it is contributing to China's GDP growth, which is real GDP growth. And mm-hmm. that was another thing. You made an incredibly astute observation a day before the Financial Times last week. You oh, were yeah, ahead yeah. of the ball. I got what that from Kanthan, but I, I just kind of okay. took his idea and ex- elaborated on it. 
I thought you scooped the Financial Times. <laughs> well, I did beat them by a day. So I was wondering if yeah. they had stolen my idea because it was almost exactly the same thing. But, yeah. you know, there is a lot of stuff in the U.S. economy that it doesn't isn't real at all. So it's, it's, no. it's very bizarre it's that they, they count unrealized rents from people who buy their own homes. So if you buy your own home in the United States, then the person who now owns their own home, the hypothetical rent that they would have paid as a renter is counted as part of the GDP, which makes no no sense at all. Like it's absolutely bizarre. Um, but you know, um, it, it is bizarre. It, it, How does it, that it, happen? I know. I have no idea. So yeah, the the U.S. real GDP is much lower than it appears in the figures that the United States releases. China also builds huge, massive infrastructure projects for especially uh, poor nations. So uh, one mm. example that I found first, and this is a gigantic one, is this is not a loan. This was built for uh, this Mozambique. It is a $447 million airport, a full airport Should with the, the tarmac and like the, you know, everything, you know, mm. every, the parking lot, everything down to the parking lot, the lights, everything completely built 400. That's a half a billion dollars. Get, is a gift. Free. Yeah. A gift. A gift. That's not why. A lot of the Come BRI on, projects are oftentimes loans for projects that big, but this is mm. actually just a gift. The criticism people throw, one of the big ones is that this is to create favorable conditions for that country to continue to cooperate with China. This is so that people like China, Jason. Yeah. Of course it is. The CCP <laughs> only do those things so they can retain popularity. I mean, yes, I, they're right. You're but right. Why is that? Again, like you mentioned before, why is that a criticism? I would much rather have, you know, instead of like, let's all hang out and have a dinner together and that's diplomacy and we shake hands, you build me mm. an airport, you know, come to my country, build me an airport for free and then let, let's shake hands and have a party about that. That's fantastic okay. diplomacy and we should be learning I'm, I'm from gonna, that. Okay. The, right. the example, I mean, I have plenty of examples that I know hundreds and hundreds of projects I could find for you that, that are loans, yeah. but these okay. ones well, in, in this list, everything is here, donated their grants. They're completely free. All of these. Because that sometimes does happen. Mm -hmm. You want an airport? We'll build you an airport. But why would we build you an airport if you don't even recognize us? Oh, well, we'll recognize you. So the Solomon Islands are, the, are exactly that. They have converted from recognizing Taiwan. And there's a couple in South America who've done the same thing fairly recently as well, or Central America. And, and I think that's, that's once people start to see that, they say, well, the Americans aren't helping us. Why should we listen to them? And Because it's really America that's driving this. You continue recognizing Taiwan and we'll help you. Now they're watching... This is why they're so angry about it. I know you're American. This is why Americans are so angry about it, the administration, because they're seeing that China is going in there and doing what they haven't done. Mm -hmm. And they haven't done it for a long time. But you, you, Jeffrey Sachs, made a very valid point in the 1950s and 1960s. Who would not have wanted to be an American? It was the golden years. And even me growing up in the UK in the 1960s, I used to admire the Americans incredibly. And then something went wrong. And I don't know when it went wrong, but it went wrong. And maybe Vietnam was the, the catalyst for that. I don't know. Maybe uh, Kennedy's death. I think it just was, it was heading in the right direction. And then it diverted. But for many, many years, these countries that, that recognize Taiwan have been encouraged by the United States to keep Taiwan as a recognized 
country, which of course it isn't, and the United Nations doesn't recognize it as such, but every country is entitled to their own opinion. And now China is saying, well, look, you know, if you do recognize us, then it's going to be to your benefit. They can't really benefit the Vatican very much, but there's uh, the rest of the countries, and the Solomons was one, and I think Ecuador was another. There's a, there's a few countries that have recently converted from mm-hmm. recognizing Taiwan to recognizing China, and the benefits for doing that have been enormous. Now, that's where people say, ah, they're only doing it because. Well, fair enough, but they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Criticize that. Yeah. Under President Hu, a lot of these projects were stadiums, sports stadiums, mm-hmm. but you know there were still hydropower projects and, and so forth going back decades, but a lot of them under Hu were um, stadiums. But under mm-hmm. uh, President Xi Jinping, they have kind of turn towards things that are really useful. So it's, I don't think there is a single stadium that I can find, but there are a few, you know, exhibition centers, there's air, there are airports, there are roads, and then you have the Belt and Road. And then those are multi-billion dollar projects where they're building hydropower dams and all kinds of things all over the world in 152 member countries. I think Italy just left a week ago. So it might be 151. So that's Uh, most of the world. It's been coming for a while, but uh, Italy were given uh, the new prime minister of Italy went to a meeting with Biden in America and came back and said, we're going to be leaving the Belt and Road. So got the instructions. You want to be in the G7, you can't be in the BRI. Mm. Simple. That's that's what it boils down to. I think you watch a lot of the same speeches that I watch that go around. Yeah. And, you know, basically leaders in developing countries, they don't want to be told you can't work with the IMF, you can't work with the AIB, you can't work with BRI. They want to make their own decisions. If they want a loan from the World Bank mm. or whatever, that's up to them. And if the World Bank wants to cooperate with them, great. And if not, and, and maybe the Exim Bank or AIIB can give that loan instead, that should be up to the leaders in Kenya and Namibia or wherever. They should be able to make the decisions mm-hmm. and th- they are doing so. I, so for me, a lot of the criticisms that come out about Chinese development finance in you know the underdeveloped world, which is now starting to finally develop, uh, you know, it's disrespectful to them because they're the ones initiating these decisions. They're the ones signing mm-hmm. off on the decisions, who they want to do business with, what loans they want to take, what kind of projects they want to develop. And so for the United States to go into these countries and say, no, it's us or them, is really disrespectful to them, one. But also then saying that it's a debt trap or something is ludicrous because firstly, it's not. And secondarily, it was the decision of that nation that they wanted to build that airport or that seaport or whatever it is. What's most interesting about that is that China, Xi Jinping in particular, in the USA, in San Francisco, he has repeatedly said, it's not a competition between us. You can share the merit. We don't mind if you work with Americans. We don't mind if you work with us. It can be shared. It's it's not an issue. And it's the Americans who are saying, well, you've got to choose BRI or build back better world. B3, <laughs> Which w, have provided zero projects that. so far, by the way. Zero it, projects. They, they did, the White House put out a, a bulletin about this. It was about a year ago. And I read it. And I looked at this and I thought, I've heard of these. This, these are new initiatives under the Build Back B3W system. And I looked at this. I know what I'm going to do. There were seven or eight different projects mentioned. And I went to each and every one of them. And I looked 
at where they started, when they started, what they were, and every single one of them has just been renamed, rebadged B3W. Oh. And I wrote an article which got published by Pearls and Irritations in Australia, and that's something I'm rather pleased with. When I write an article like that, Pearls and Irritations pick it up and say, we're going to run with this. And it just showed G7's B3W infrastructure cannot match BRI's infrastructure because there's literally nothing, nothing, not a single thing has happened that wasn't already happening. So nothing changed after the huge announcement of B3W fizzled out. It was a firework that didn't go bang. We don't have any time left, but I want to say, I guess we're both going to struggle to say a few more things. One thing I want to say that all of these projects are enabling is more global stability. Because in 2008, when the US economy went down, it took the world with it, basically. But if the world is more diffused and there are more modern places, there's more trade between other countries and other currencies and all of this activity going on. If one particular country goes down, the world may dip a little a little bit, but there's still so much else going on that it's not going to take the entire world down again. So it, well, this we're is watching even in the in U.S. best interest if the U.S. wants yeah, to recover we, after one of these busts. We're watching in real time as uh, Korea, Japan, United Kingdom, all and Germany all suffer from declining GDPs. Now, that, that's that's really serious stuff. These are major economies. These are top 10 economies in the world, all starting to come. I think South Korea is a little lower than that, but Japan, UK, Germany, these are in the top 10. Mm -hmm. They're in the G7. Mm -hmm. These economies are all struggling. The US, as you've very succinctly pointed out, is living on vapors. It's not really a real true GDP because if you take out what doesn't exist, it's a collapsing GDP. Their only reason for continuing is because of the use of the dollar, and even that is declining. So you are in a position now where one of those, any one of those countries collapsing would cause a devastating effect. I think that BRI is probably 10 years too late. Had it started 10 years before and was in further development right now, we might be in a much safer, more stable position. But the, the point you make about stability is very well made, but we can't, no one can afford. And China doesn't want the United States to collapse. The right, United States yeah. would be quite happy if China collapses, but <laughs> the rest of the world would not. Australia would, Australia, for example, I mean, my, I'm, I'm an Australian citizen and it would be devastating to Australia's economy if China collapses. It would absolutely destroy Australia. Something close to 40% of all their imports and exports are here in China. So you've got that kind of situation. Nobody wants any country to collapse. It's bad for the world. And the stability that we need is slowly creeping up with the developing world developing their own GDPs. The mm -hmm. GDP of the world is going up and China is driving that. Well, just to really mention something uh, at, at the end is that I think the United States, the leaders there who seem to me as an American, clueless a little bit about <laughs> China, um, they went from we want to decouple to we yeah. want to oh, de we want to de-risk to now they're yeah. not even saying that anymore. Now they're no, just like, they oh, we want to try to do this little thing or that little thing. But there's no overarching mechanism for like uh, trying to damage Sino-US relations because they've come to the realization that you and I had years ago that that's not in anyone's interest. It's not in US interests. Anyways, no. we're so out of time. Do you have any last last thoughts by Jerry Gray? Uh, last thoughts by Jerry Gray is the, the green light. Did you see the green light speech? Um, what the European Union is doing at the moment no. is they're sending a signal of 
stop, go and slow to China. We just need this finalized. Do you want us to be your partner? Do you want us to be your rival? Do you want us to be your enemy? You've got to make that decision. And and that's the rest of the world needs to do that. China is not the enemy. Mm. People telling you the enemy is China, they are your enemy. That's my <laughs> final word. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, yeah.